Welcome to Conversations Live. Infrastructure deficit tonight. We're coming to you tonight from the traditional territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish First Nations who have lived on and continue to call these lands home, OCM. Well, kudos to Premier Eby, who one week ago today announced a $36 billion investment in hydroelectricity infrastructure spending. But to be clear, that was to improve the grid, not increase generating capacity. His announcement, well, welcome. It's the kind of investment announcement that's needed week after week and month over month. In Vancouver, the mayor's budget task force report released last week highlighted the dramatic infrastructure gap in this city. The report states the city of Vancouver faces the challenge of ensuring financial sustainability amidst escalating infrastructure demands. It goes on to say this is specifically especially important given the existing $500 million annual funding deficit related to the city's infrastructure, which serves as the backbone for delivering the essential services that residents rely upon daily. And it's paramount for the city to maintain and renew its infrastructure to ensure that Vancouver remains a livable and economically vibrant city. You know, typically infrastructure only makes news when something breaks down or it doesn't even exist. That seems to be changing. We're hearing more about the essential physical resources of our region, province, and country because it's becoming clear we have a problem, a significant one. Transportation, healthcare, education, water and wastewater, emergency services, energy, finance, food, and agriculture, along with IT, are some of just the 16 critical infrastructure sectors, and apparently we're falling behind in each of them. I thought, how's that possible? I just went out and did a little research and wanted to see if we're really doing that badly. And what I came away with was looking at a number of projects underway in BC and in Canada, uh, you'll find that there's a lot of them in development right now being built. In fact, far too many for me to list here. So at first glance, you could go, eh, maybe we're actually doing pretty good as far as our investment into the future is concerned. But it turns out, Mm, not quite. I dug a little deeper and was surprised to learn we're not doing well, actually. According to Statista, when it comes to inland transportation investment as a percentage of GDP, China devotes 4.8% of its GDP. Uzbekistan, 2.3% of its GDP. North Macedonia, 1.7%. And you might even be asking yourself, well, where's North Macedonia? Well, it's nestled in between Greece and Kosovo. And then there is Canada. We're 37th on the list in the world with only a 0.6% annual investment in inland transportation. According to BCG Consulting, that's indicative of our infrastructure investment across the board. We're doing so poorly that Canada has a severe infrastructure deficit. You know, going back to the mayor's budget task force report, the author said the planned 1% annual property tax increase coupled with a 4 to 5% fee increase will only partially address the infrastructure funding deficit. Those incremental increases alone will not adequately bridge the shortfall. So what happened to us? 
you know, from the 40s through to the 60s, there was an extensive infrastructure building boom, which contributed to our remarkable economic performance over the last five decades. And thanks to the very long life cycle of those important facilities, infrastructure kind of faded from the minds of the public and politicians as a priority. Well, fast forward to now, those assets are aging out meaning the cost to maintain them is rising and the risk of failure is increasing. Now add in rapid population growth. You know that Metro Vancouver's population is projected to clear 3 million people this June, coupled with underspending by governments and on maintenance and new construction, and suddenly we find ourselves in a new term that I just came across the other day, a population trap. Today and well into the future, the mantra of asset management teams is and will be, do more with less. Now, just before we begin, I'm going to express my wholehearted gratitude to our sponsors who make this evening possible. Our presenting sponsors are KPMG, RBC, and Helijet. Our event sponsors are Stem Cell Technologies, Fortis BC, Hewitt. Landlord BC, Polygon, BD, the Port of Vancouver, the Digital Technology Supercluster, LNG Canada, and Research Co. And our media partner is the Vancouver Sun. BCIT is also a supporter. And I want to especially thank Apogee Public Relations and give a big shout out to Oh Boy Productions. Uh, the crew are experts in live online virtual event productions and live video press conferences. Now, one last thing for anyone who wishes to pose a question, whether you're here in the audience or online, please go to slido.com, enter the password conversations, and send us your questions. Sean, who's over there in the corner, he's our Slido master, will be reviewing your questions and bringing them forward to us. And while we won't be able to get to them all, they do help to inform me uh, about some of the topics and questions that I'll be putting forward this evening. <clears throat> now, to further set the stage, here is Mario Canseco of Research Co. who conducted a poll about our opinions on our thoughts about infrastructure in BC. Amy, can you run that uh, video of Mario, please? Many British Columbians are keenly aware of the challenges that inadequate infrastructure brings to their communities every day. More than two in five know that regional parks have new policies in place to deal with vehicles and visitors, and just over half have followed stories related to a record number of passengers requiring the services of BC ferries. Still, the story that has captivated residents the most is related to water shortages. In recent years, the word portables has become prevalent in discussions related to schools and healthcare. About half of BC residents know that hospitals have added portables to expand waiting room capacity. Awareness of portables being used instead of adequately designed and constructed classrooms is particularly high in Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley. Only one in 10 BC residents believe that the level of infrastructure in their community is very good, while almost three in five consider it good. The age demographic suggests a certain level of decay in some municipalities, while only 18% of BC residents aged 18 to 34 think their local infrastructure is bad or very bad. The number rises to 25% among their counterparts aged 35 to 54 and to 26% among those aged 55 and over. 
Put differently, one in four BC residents over the age of 35 are not satisfied with the systems that are currently in place to serve them. One in five BC residents believe that the level of infrastructure in their community has worsened over the past five years, while only 15% believe it has improved. While majorities of residents across all five regions believe there have been no significant changes, there are still some striking differences. In southern British Columbia and Vancouver Island, one in four residents believe that infrastructure has deteriorated since 2019. BC residents spread the blame fairly evenly when asked why their communities are facing infrastructure challenges. For more than 7 in 10, the biggest hindrance is bad decisions and poor planning from elected officials. More than two-thirds also expressed dismay at the lack of focus on repairing and maintaining existing facilities. About 3 in 5 BC residents also believe that communities may not be ready to welcome more residents and wonder if certain projects have been awarded without sufficient oversight. For Conversations Live, I'm Mario Canseco from ResearchGo. Thank you, Mario. So we have an amazing panel who have patiently been waiting to get in here and mix it up and uh, discuss this very, very exciting topic, infrastructure. So let me introduce you to them. To my right uh, is Vivian Chan, a global infrastructure advisor with KPMG. Seated next to Vivian is Dallas Smith, the President and Chair of Nonoculus Council and Business Corporation. Sorry, Dallas, I did a terrible job on pronouncing that. I really struggled with it, but you'll, you'll straighten me out through the evening. To Dallas's right is Tamara Vrooman, the President and CEO of Vancouver Air International Airport. Seated next to Tamara is Burnaby Mayor Mike Hurley. Just off of Mike's right shoulder is Chris Gardner, the president of the Independent Contractors Business Association. And seated next to Chris is Ken Peacock, the senior economist at the Business Council of BC. We also have a few video comments that we'll be introducing tonight. One from Ryan Tones, the senior vice president and district manager of Q at Western Canada. Another from Leon Gaber, the Executive Director and National Lead for Critical Infrastructure and Resilience and Emergency Management at KPMG. And John Stackhouse, RBC's Senior Economist. Thanks for waiting for us to get through all the preamble to get to the, the really good stuff. So let's go. Tamara, I want to start with you. Um, first of all, do you agree we have an infrastructure challenge and how do we get out of it? Thanks very much, uh, Stu. Well, of course, the short answer to that is yes, we have an infrastructure challenge. And I know the name of this uh, uh, session is infrastructure deficit, but I actually think we have an infrastructure debt. Uh, so not only do we need new infrastructure to support our uh, communities and our economy, we also have insufficient uh, existing infrastructure and it's not built for purpose. So it can't withstand, in many cases, the climate uh, changes that we're seeing. Uh, and there's a real need to not only maintain to current levels, but to think about resilience uh, in terms of how we build our physical infrastructure in particular uh, right across the country. And so is it, a, is it a problem that can be solved? Well, I don't think any of us would be sitting here if we thought the answer to that was no, but it is a big challenge. Uh, infrastructure is one of those things that, uh, as you said, very few people talk about unless it doesn't 
work. It's the unsexiest of uh, dinner conversation topics, but yet it is essential to everything we do. When you think about it, infrastructure is one of the most important things that determines the future society and economy that we create. Whether there's a hospital in a community or not makes a big difference to how that community thrives, not only from a health point of view, but from an economic point of view. Whether we have broadband connectivity to rural and indigenous communities makes a huge difference to education rates as well as to the ability for inclusive economic participation. And in my business, we are blessed to be a country that is uh, large in geography, but small in population. And so we need a healthy aviation and transportation system that uh, just to make our society and our economy work. And so what's the problem with infrastructure? Well, unfortunately, uh, it's owned by multiple owners and not one of us has all of the financial resources or the planning uh, capability to really be able to efficiently build uh, the infrastructure that we need. So we need innovation and we need different tools and we need to frankly make a commitment that we agree that infrastructure is something that we need to put on a policy agenda, we need to put it on financial institutions agendas, we need to be engaging with our customers and with our citizens around why it's important. And then finally, and probably most importantly for infrastructure, we need to stick with it. One of the things I do in my spare time is I'm the chair of the Canada Infrastructure Bank Board. The Canada Infrastructure uh, uh, Bank was created to try and close the gap that we have in financing infrastructure. But you know, it was preceded by a P3 organization that was P3, uh, preceded by another infrastructure organization that was, and so infrastructure tends to change every few years with the election cycle. Very, very hard to finance infrastructure over 10, 20, 30 years, which we heard is our inheritance and our legacy when we're making changes uh, to the financing and planning mechanisms. And so the Infrastructure Bank has uh, had got off to a fairly slow start. It's been around since uh, 2017. But once it got its feet under it, uh, we've done over 50 projects. $30 billion, only $9 million of the federal government's money. The rest is leveraged from other sources in the private sector in virtually every community across uh, the country in a variety of sectors from agriculture to wastewater to alternative energy to broadband to transportation and trade. I really think that uh, I'm looking forward to hearing from my colleagues around the different ways that we can be bringing planning, energy, talent, capital to bear in a variety of ways. This is not a one-note solution, one-size-fits-all. Not only is the depth and breadth of our infrastructure needs uh, vast, the needs of different communities in different parts of the country uh, are also varied. So we need a variety of tools, but first and foremost, we need a commitment that is important. We need to mobilize the resources behind it, and then it'd be great if we could stick with it for more than four years at a time. <coughs> Wouldn't it? Uh, you also noted that you have spare time. I'm wondering how you do that. <laughs> Ken Peacock, uh, you know, as we listen to Tamara's uh, optimistic and hopeful, um, you know, uh, look forward. What happens if we don't uh, achieve what Tamara believes is possible? 
Oh, yes, you go to the economists for the dark, dark, <laughs> dismal interpretation. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, bring us, bring the energy yeah, yeah. in the room down. Yes. The, uh, well, uh, Tamara touched on some some of it. Uh, I guess you could, I could start off by saying the implications are widespread, and it's going to depend very much on what infrastructure in particular. But you could make a fairly fairly good case that the deficit is widespread as well. So I think we're living some of the implications real time, uh, stacked portables in, in, on hospital grounds, uh, long lists in, in, in ER, and then just congestion, growing congestion around the lower mainland if we're going to talk about transportation infrastructure. So th these are real costs and they impact people and they impact households. And I sometimes in the transportation segment, I, I don't know if those costs are fully recognized in, in these discussions. And I myself would like to see that elevated as part, as part of the discussion. But uh, when we have weak and insufficient capacity, it does create widespread problems. And then I will shift a little bit to more of an economic lens. If we can't move goods efficiently and export products and import products efficiently, uh, that adds costs and that is a drag on productivity. So one way that we can look to improve productivity, and we could have a whole session on productivity challenges in British Columbia and Canada, but one way is to invest in infrastructure. It's not the only solution, but that would be important. So I would say to the extent that we're under-investigating, we're harming ourselves in terms of productivity, the wages, quality of life, prosperity here in the province. And Tamara alluded to it as well. Uh, it's this catch-up. I've watched infrastructure investment for 25 years in this province, and it sort of only seems to happen when it becomes almost a crisis situation. Uh, then we react, and then we build a, a new uh, Portman Bridge. And also the consistency and getting away from the political cycles uh, uh, and even initiatives like the Olympics. There was a huge uh, investment in infrastructure ahead of the Olympics. But rather than requiring these events or some sort of political motive, it would be much, much more effective to have it stable and, and streamlined and consistent, as Tamara was saying. So I think we, one of the consequences, to get back to your question, is is we're going to be in perpetual catch-up mode for a long period of time if we don't address this very, very soon. Vivian, uh, I know that uh, Ken is echoing some of your thoughts, but how does this then uh, impact, uh, you know, so many different municipalities and the way that they want to address infrastructure deficits? Yeah, so not only are municipalities now faced with an enormous task of serving an increasingly diverse population, we have new needs that are coming in. We have a, an ongoing um, requirement to ensure that we're responsible for our future generations and making those appropriate investments as well. So let's pile all of that into one single bill for one little entity to take on. It is an enormous task for the amount of infrastructure that they have to manage. Um, and, and so the implication for municipalities is now you have to make choices that are very difficult to um, stand behind in the long term. It is either you pay for it, this facility, this community center, and then you lose an aquatic center next door, um, or you end up with a school and not a park anymore. These are not decisions that are that can be made easily because there are no winners coming out of this decision at the end of the day. Then you go look at the different funding mechanisms that they can pursue, but you add into the, the political cycle that come with it, um, the driving forces of external senior level government funding that drives these types of investments. Um, then they're dealing with new capital, trying to bring in new capacity. 
but then they don't have enough O&M dollars to pay for it. <laughs> you don't have the, the less exciting um, cost items of making sure your walls are, your building envelope is still okay, making sure that all of your roofs are <laughs> functioning the way that they're supposed to. So between new capital, serving new capacity, serving new functions, providing increasingly enhanced services to citizens, as well as everything else that they've inherited over the years that may not be to today's code, needs to be um, upgraded to meet today's standards, it is a never-ending cycle of just expenses that come piling up. So without new funding mechanisms, without new ways to fundamentally rethink the way we package infrastructure and the way that we deliver it, um, with operations and maintenance in mind as well, um, I, I don't know how we are going to break out of this cycle effectively. Thank you for that uplifting thought. <laughs> also an economist. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Dallas, uh, when Tamara was uh, speaking, she was talking about the fact that we're not just talking about uh, urban centers. We're also talking about uh, remote, rural, and indigenous communities. But if we take a look at the number of projects that are uh, slated to be built out close to four, 500 over the next decade or so, upwards of 300 of those um, may uh, most likely have an indigenous component to them. What role do in, uh, you know, First Nations communities play in being able to help bridge those infrastructure gaps, especially when you move outside of uh, urban centers like Metro Vancouver? Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, Ken was talking about the costs if we didn't do it, and you really only have to look at the reserve situation in Canada to have that illustrated for you to what it may look like if we don't make those investments. But one of the challenges we have as First Nations communities is infrastructure is such a subjective term. What does it mean? to us on the coast of British Columbia. It's about food security and logistics infrastructure. But on top of that, we're also adding new agendas from that rounding, that round door of political cycles that come in where climate change has come in now and it's a reality that we're facing with, but we haven't put the investments in places in rural First Nations communities to be able to achieve that. I guess an example I'll use is in Campbell River, we just saw uh, Myra Falls Mine go to a permanent, well, go to a shutdown. It's the only mine in British Columbia that's not on the grid. Whereas we've built new mines, we've built bigger mines, we've been able to use First Nations partnerships to get hydroelectric access to help meet our climate goal changes, to make things more economically viable to do it. But here we are in the middle of Vancouver Island, a 40-minute plane flight from where we are, and that infrastructure doesn't exist. And so I think what First Nations bring to the table is making it a little bit more front and center regardless of the political stripe, that whether it be in Victoria, Ottawa, United Nations, First Nations are bringing that forward because it's a basic human requirement infrastructure is. And we can't stand there and stand beside politicians who wax on about reconciliation and self-determination if the package isn't complete with a framework of infrastructure to support all these initiatives. Chris, I'd, I'd like to turn to you, Chris, because you represent so many of uh, the companies that uh, are essential to being able to uh, build out these projects. From your perspective right now, what are the biggest challenges that you see ahead for the industry to be able to be uh, positioned to respond appropriately? Well, 
you know, the challenge that we have in this discussion is that you, you if you pick up a, any publication, read anything online, and what you're gonna find is infrastructure broadly defined. We've underinvested for decades. Uh, we've underbuilt. And, and whether it's housing, whether it's hospitals, uh, whether it's roads, bridges, um, think about, and I'll just focus now on trade-enabling infrastructure. 70% of our economy comes from trade. And how do we move that? We move that by rail, by, by water through ports, uh, by trucks on roads. But every single one of those pieces of infrastructure that vital to the supply chain is at risk. So as we came out of the COVID uh, pandemic, the federal government appointed a supply chain task force. That task force filed its report in October of 2022. And what it said is, we're in a supply chain crisis. Our supply chain is near the breaking point. And Canada's reputation as a reliable international trading partner is now at risk because we've underbuilt so much. And so think of the data points where that shows up. Look at the Port of Vancouver in the fall of 2021, largest port in the country, $6 billion roughly of goods flow through that port every week. It was cut off from the rest of the country by all rail and road access. We don't have enough, enough resiliency or redundancy in our supply chain. <coughs> cut off from the rest of the country for, for an entire week. And, the, and, and so then, uh, we had a strike which impacted its functioning again, but just before that strike last, last summer, there was a report that came out by the World Bank and S&P Intelligence, and what it said is it ranked 348 ports in the world in terms of operating efficiency as they deal with containers. And of the 348 ports, the Port of Vancouver did not finish in the top 10, the top 50, the top 100, the top 200, the top 300. The good news is it didn't finish last. It finished 347 out of 348. That, that's where the ranking was. And so, so we, we, the challenge is you can read report after report after report. We know what the challenges are, but we're underbuilding and we're underinvesting. Massey Tunnel. It's another great example of governments kicking the can down the road to, Ken, uh, to Ken's point. And we're going to be stuck with trying to navigate that tunnel for at least another eight years. The, the $1.3 billion Portman Bridge, which I cross over nearly every day to go from my office, where I drive from Yaletown out to Surrey. When there's a hint of snow, you know what they do with that $1.3 billion asset? When they built it, they close the inside lanes in both directions because they're afraid that this ice will fall down and hit the cars. Like, it, it, we, it is tragic, and it's showing up in, in our competitiveness. The OECD surveyed 38 advanced economies, projected their economic growth over the next decade, and Canada is going to be dead last of the 38. Less than 1% growth, 0.7% in growth in per capita incomes, meaning that for per capita incomes to double in Canada at that rate, it's going to take 100 years. 100 years. We are going over a little bit of a cliff here. I'm being a little bit more negative than Ken. But, but it's, it's a challenge that we face. We're underbuilding, underinvesting. We can't get out of our own way. And it's going to hurt all of us in every aspect of our life. And, I'll, and my final comment will be, the province of Ontario reported last week that the average wait time in emergency rooms in Ontario is 22 hours. Every part of our infrastructure is falling apart. The challenge is when you start talking about it, all of a sudden, no, no, no. We've convinced ourselves we're not willing to have an honest conversation. So you've got people walking around who've got the best healthcare system in the world. We don't. So, so we're in trouble, and we need to start having honest discussions about what it's going to take to rebuild our infrastructure so that we are efficient, effective, and competitive. 
Mayor Hurley, I sort of saved you for last because I was hoping that you were going to uh, give us a positive, uh, you know, example. Because, you know, you're the mayor of Burnaby, and it's, it's, it is a city that's held out as a shining example of how you do it. But do you feel that you're staying ahead of the infrastructure challenge? I think in general, uh, when we speak of Burnaby by itself, I think we're doing a decent job of staying ahead of the infrastructure challenge. But it's going to get more difficult as we see the escalation in costs uh, that we're seeing right now. Um, but where we are going to start falling behind is in the infrastructure that's in the ground. And, and you know, I'm going to talk about the real sexy topic of pee and poo. And uh, so, so not something that wins your votes, not something that uh, most people want to talk about. But I do know when people get up, first thing they get up in the morning, they flush the toilet, they want it to work. And they turn on the tap, they want it to work. So I like to try and keep things real and and in real language that uh, people can understand. So right now we have five wastewater plants in the lower mainland. Four of them are being massively overhauled. Some of them are getting rebuilt. And I just want to speak to the, um, to the Iona plant that is now needed. Iona was built in 1963, or sorry, it opened in 1963, was built in the 50s, early 60s. And the reason Iona was built, someone mentioned we only do things when it's really necessary to do it. The reason Iona got built was a stink in, in the beaches when people went swimming, because prior to that, we just flushed everything out into the ocean. Um, Iona plant is what we call primary treatment. Now. I'm going to try and be as nice as possible here, but, but uh, primary treatment means what floats or settles, gets treated, and everything else gets sent out into the ocean. So it, it is what it actually says, primary treatment. So the federal government has brought in new regulations that Iona must go to secondary treatment, which is a higher level, and we hope to bring it to tertiary treatment, uh, which which is really the, the highest standard you can go in, in treating water. Um, so Iona will be a partnership, and hopefully a really strong partnership, with the Musqueam Band, and it's got real issues with climate change and reinstating the salmon, the important salmon runs that are at the mouth of the Fraser, and all the other pieces that can go with building infrastructure the right way, which wasn't done the first time around. Uh, but now we have, not I think, a tremendous opportunity. But there's a big cost, and, and the big cost for this plant right now is sitting at about $10 billion. Mm. How are we going to pay for that? And, uh, you know, I know everyone gets up in arms when there's charges for certain things. But reality is, if we want to keep flushing our toilets, if we want to keep building buildings, and bringing new people in, this is a must-have. It's not a nice-to-have. And it's not things that people like to talk about. But that's the reality we face when we go to the metro van, 22 municipalities uh, coming together to uh, try and make sure we do things the right way. Um, so, you know, the pipes in Burnaby will have to get bigger, but they will go into Metro's pipes, will, which will have to get bigger. 
The treatment plants will have to get bigger and, and rebuilt, and I'm only talking about one treatment plant. And if we look at out to 2050, which is not a long way away now, that will cover about a million people in all of Vancouver, just under a million, Vancouver and Burnaby. So this is, I wish I could bring better news, by the way. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, you know, this is the reality of infrastructure. It's, it's what we all have to face. And as I keep saying, and you mentioned the word sexy. This is definitely not a sexy topic. Yeah, you win. But, uh, <laughs> but it is reality. And, and, and those are the challenges, I think, that we're going to face. This will be a 20-year project. The federal government tells us we have to have it secondary treatment at least by 2030. We're never going to meet that target. It's more likely 2035 if everything goes well. We have gone into phase one, and although the federal government had told us we must do it, they haven't produced any money to help us out yet. Uh, the provincial government has given us $250 million for the first phase, and we're asking the federal government to match that. So as I say, there, there's much more to go. We could talk about this topic all day, but that's the reality of some of the infrastructure challenges we're facing. And, and I'm, just, I'm just talking about that. So, so happy to, if anyone else wants to discuss pee and poo, I'm happy to have that discussion. <laughs> well, you bring up an interesting point. And uh, if we take a look at what's happening in the Soyuz right now, uh, residents are up in arms over the significant uh, tax increases that they're facing just over water delivery. Um, I spoke to Leon uh, Gaber about the challenge that municipalities find themselves in, which also leads to a bit of this uh, lack of long-term planning across the board. Amy, can you play, play that clip from Leon, please? There is this historic deficit, and that deficit gets bigger and bigger every year. And by not addressing it proactively, the challenge of trying to get out of that deficit every year becomes harder and harder. And so an example like Asoyas, when where they're raising taxes almost 50% to try to get out of that deficit, understandably, communities have a hard time swallowing that increase in cost. Now, should a community have increased rates or taxes rather on an incremental basis over time? Maybe, but there's all kinds of reasons why they may not. To me, this comes back to, again, this can't be a community-by-community community problem because I think the, what we see in a soyuz there will happen across the province. If, based on where we're at with the infrastructure deficit that we have, if we just leave it to municipalities, uh, it, frankly, it's going to fail. I, I, really, I really believe there needs to be a concerted effort by both the province and municipalities to work together on that. And, and there's no other way, but it has to come with significant funding. And, and so uh, just leaving it to communities like, like Asoyas, you will see over and over again real unhappiness, discord, and who knows what else if you uh, just leave it to them to have significant tax hikes, which is really, really municipalities' only option to pay for these extremely expensive upgrades and new pieces of infrastructure. And they're expensive. They're not cheap things to do. They're very complicated. And complex, so uh, that's why I really believe that we need this uh, a province-wide approach, a strategy, on uh, tackling this over the next coming decade. Not to put you on the spot, Vivian, but uh, please add to that because he's right, isn't he? Yeah, the you know taxation is is one of the first, uh, perhaps 
best understood tool to raise funding to pay for infrastructure. Um, what we're starting to see, though, is um, the introduction of a number of other avenues that local governments um, and or in partnership with private sector to access and pay for different types of infrastructure. With the introduction also of other types of services that are being provided, connectivity, um, bringing greater you know, access to broadband, all of those new assets with private sector having their interests in mind as well, um, also brings opportunities for local governments um, to engage in partnerships that not only you know, provide them that one-time capital funding to catch up or to piggyback onto infrastructure builds, um, but actually can become a viable long-term revenue stream to pay for the long-term operations and maintenance as well. Um, and so this requires, again, a very different think and look about what um, municipalities are responsible for, how they pay for uh, infrastructure, and how they can actually work more actively with the community grassroots all the way through to the private sector um, to deliver infrastructure in a whole different level of service for citizens as well as visitors in the region. So uh, I'm going to Tamara and Dallas, um, you know, looking at relationships with uh, First Nations, because at the airport, you've got a strong working relationship with Musqueam. What does that relationship bring to you in an ability to be creative in coming up with solutions that may help move processes along? And Dallas, then, if you can follow on after uh, tomorrow. Yeah, thanks, Stu. We do have um, uh, a very uh, a productive and uh, deep relationship with the Musqueam Indian Band on whose traditional territory uh, YVR is located on uh, on Sea Island. And so we've had a sustainability and friendship agreement, uh, first of its kind in the country, uh, since uh, 2017, which uh, calls on us to really think about um, major industrial operator and airport really think about and pay attention to the original um, occupiers and owners ultimately of the land that uh, that we use to run the airport and so it's everything from cultural and i hope you've seen if you come to the airport uh, more evidence of uh, musqueam representation and language it's employment but it's also investment um, Musqueam Capital Corporation is uh, is a key partner for us in the work that we do to build the kind of transportation infrastructure, which I think most of us think of in terms of the movement of people, but is also key uh, to the movement of goods uh, in, in our region. In fact, uh, as you were saying, Chris, uh, when we had the atmospheric river and the province was cut off for those seven days, uh, the airport was the only uh, major piece of infrastructure that was fully operational, providing connectivity between the Lower Mainland uh, and the rest of the country. I did want to talk just briefly, if I could, though, a little bit about the money side, um, because certainly we have the benefit of partnership and investments uh, with, uh, with Musqueam. But as we've heard, the reason that we have an infrastructure deficit is not only because we haven't built enough, but we also haven't funded enough in order to build enough. Uh, and so for sure that needs to come from, uh, from some form uh, of taxpayers, but as you heard, they can't possibly uh, do it all. User pay systems, that's the system that we have at the airport, where I'm sure you all love that uh, airport improvement fee, uh, which is part of, and the rates and charges that we charge our airline customers in order to support the infrastructure. And then we have public uh, programs in the form of grants from provinces, 
uh, and the federal government, and then ultimately um, financing arrangements like the Canada Infrastructure Bank, like the Ontario Infrastructure Bank, like Partnerships BC before it, like Infrastructure British Columbia, and so on. But there's a partner that's missing in the equation, and it is um, needs to go beyond Indigenous governments, local governments, provincial governments, and even the federal governments, and that's the private sector. And we have been uh, very, very reluctant in this country to use private sector funds in order to help accelerate our um, infrastructure financing and funding. You know, we have uh, something called the Maple Eight. Maple Eight, what are those? Those are well-known internationally public pension funds that invest in infrastructure throughout the world. In my sector, uh, Canadian pension funds, two of them, own the Heathrow uh, Airport in London. But yet, Canadian pension funds are not eligible to invest in most infrastructure in our own country. These are Canadians' public sector pension plans. These are our own savings to be reinvested uh, into our own infrastructure. So there are some minor but significant changes to the way we've structured the financing of infrastructure that could attract world-class capital. It's our capital, it's our pension funds managed by Canadians that is going to accelerate the competitive position of uh, infrastructure in countries around the world when our own country, whether it's in indigenous communities or large metropolitan areas or a major piece of transportation infrastructure like the airport go wanting. So are there some creative uh, ways in which we can um, finance especially in partnership with First Nations. Dallas. Well, I mean, there really has to be. Like I said, if we're going to keep talking about reconciliation and self-determination, we need to fit that conversation in. I had the luxury of, well, luxury. Um, I spent 20 years in the Great Bear Rainforest watching environmentalists and forest companies fight over my backyard. And I watched four different premiers referee it for a long time until First Nations finally said, enough is enough. We're going to start seeing what we want in our yard. But as we were having that discussion, local communities started coming to us and saying, hey, we'd like those things in our yard, which is right adjacent to your yard. But for years, that's just been lip service. You know, I've watched with by project infrastructure as opposed to sitting down and building a 20-year plan about how do we take the collective to bring in outside revenue. Hang on one second, your mic's cutting out there. Maybe you can borrow Vivian's mic for a sec, okay? Um, and, okay. Yeah, so like I was saying, I've watched, you know, the goodwill and the intentions to have these kinds of dialogues, but unfortunately, it's more of a case-by-case -case basis when it comes to infrastructure investment. But now that First Nations are bringing in the kind of revenues and opportunities that are there, it's really time for organizations like UBCM and maybe the First Nations Summit or BC Assembly of First Nations to sit down and start talking about how do we collectively build these 20-year plans around investment in infrastructure and how can First Nations use some of the opportunities that they have when it comes to zoning, um, 
bringing projects to fruition a little bit quicker because of some of the lack of red tape that may exist in some areas because of good community planning and spatial planning and use those synergies together as opposed to saying, okay, every four years we're going to argue about fire services and water and sewage services. And we take it out of that being a political football and it's actually an investment that we're all making because every child matters, every infrastructure matters and it starts to, like I said, become a human rights issue if we don't have it. And so it's really important for the leadership in all the communities, whether it be provincial, federal, municipal, and First Nations, to sort of get over themselves a little bit and quit worrying about the one-upsmanship that comes into those dialogues and actually have some strategic long-range planning together. And I think that's really part of the solutions. We're the First Nations guys bringing the, the joyness and the opportunity. <laughs> Sean, can I uh, ask you to go to a question that I see here from Glenn Arthur, uh, where he uh, speaks about uh, what uh, the the funding models might be? Absolutely. Thanks, Stu. Uh, Glenn Arthur asks, uh, who should take the lead to address infrastructure debt? We're a trading nation. We need routes to get goods to market. We used to have uh, a unified approach, for example, the gateway programs of the 2000s, but current programs have failed. So who can bring governments, First Nations, railways, and ports together? Mayor Hurley, you have any thoughts on that? And then I'll follow up with uh, you, Chris, okay? Well, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to, to get together and, and sit in a room and ensure that this happens. It's, uh, it's not rocket science. Uh, we all know what needs to be done. Let's sit down and get to work. And, and as uh, has been said, you know, let's put all this one-upmanship aside and uh, get real, sit down in a room and figure out ways to move forward. That's, that's the only way we ever solve anything. So uh, let's, I just say let's get to work. Chris, do you think that's possible? Well, I think it's challenging because we need very strong political leadership which outside the city of Burnaby, we don't see very often. Um, so if could, you, could you pat Mayor Hurley on the back too? <laughs> um, but you mentioned, uh, there's an example on, on infrastructure uh, that came up last week uh, when we had the record coal snap. Uh, the North American Electric Reliability Corporation came out and said uh, in British Columbia, in, the ne- in three years from now, um, we are not gonna be in the position to reliably provide the electricity we're gonna need to fuel our economy in three years from now. And last year we imported 20% of all electricity that we used in British Columbia. That's two Site C's. Now I remember Site C when it was, you know, the the debate was raging whether it should be approved or not. New government was elected, they were reviewing it, should we cancel it or not? I went to the public hearing that was held downtown, eighth floor of an office building, about 200 people. You had to have, you know, your name had to be on the list, I went up to speak in favor of Site C. I was the only one in that room speaking in favor of Site C. Every single other person was out there with signs and placards, don't build it, shut it down. And that's the problem we have in Canada. We are ranked number 64 in the world by the World Bank in the length of time it takes to approve a major infrastructure or construction permit. We're a G7 economy, but we take too long to approve and permit projects. We're just not building enough infrastructure. And so if you think of what happened in Canada last year, we brought in, our population expanded by 1.2 million people. We added a city the size of Calgary to Canada last year. That's the pace we're on. Calgary last year, Calgary this year, Calgary next year. The pressure that is going to put on every part of our infrastructure. We have got to have, show political leadership and start 
planning and building infrastructure. And um, because every time you, you plan a new project, I guarantee you, every single public hearing I've gone to, the expansion of Campbell Heights, every single project, it's always about 95 to 5 against that project. Don't build it. And that's the challenge that we have. I think you left out one thing there. The plan and, and approve, but we also need to fund it. We can't build things without funding. So, uh, and that's what we're finding with Iona. We're, it's well planned. It's uh, done in partnership with uh, the Musqueam, and we're going to all kinds of lengths. But it's raising those funds that are that's going to be the real challenge. Ken. Yeah, the, I think the the um, Asia Pacific Gateway was mentioned, and if I th I think back to how that came to fruition. First of all, it involved multiple levels of government, the federal government, uh, some local businesses, um, uh, trains and whatnot, as well as the provincial government. But also in the background, there was uh, an organization called the Greater Vancouver Gateway Council. And they pulled together a comprehensive plan of assets that were going to be required to, uh, to advance the gateway and take advantage of the Asia-Pacific Asia Gateway opportunities. So. You know, and they were relentless and, and tenacious and argued. And the reason we have a South Fraser perimeter road from Tawas and out to Highway 1 is, is I would say, because of that entity and that organization. So some element uh, or organization that pulls together a plan continues to fight and advocate for it and brings multiple levels of government together for costly things like gateway projects, I think is a, is a good approach. We don't really see that anymore. There's not um, strong advocates and with comprehensive plans moving forward infrastructure. Um, not easy to do, but the tenacity of the Gateway Council it was a big benefit to the province, I will say that. Well, Amy, this is a perfect time to bring in a clip from Ryan Tones uh, that I've uh, labeled Getting to Yes. The piece I see taking the largest amount of time to have a secure project pipeline is the ability to get projects to yes through permitting, regulatory, uh, etc. If there would be an ability to fast track projects once the need was identified, the fast tracking of the project would create more opportunity for the market to competitively bid those for those projects. The time frame seemed to be extended where Somebody decides, yes, there's a need, but to get from that decision point to ready to go uh, is quite a duration depending on project size. Due to our ability to be able to, to plan and move forward, if it's always taking so long, we're going through these boom and bust cycles when we go to do it. To your point, Chris, um, it takes years. Uh, I, a statistic that I looked up was, how many dams, how many hydroelectric dams do we have in BC? The answer is 90. Um, and 30 of them are owned by BC Hydro. Of those 30, 20 of them were built before 1960. The last BC Hydro dam to come online was 1984, Revelstoke. Uh, we're waiting for Site C. We need many more Site Cs. And on the private side, uh, investment in electrical generation has dropped right off since the turn of the century, the last uh, facility coming online in 2018. And virtually nothing's in, in the pipeline. 
what's happened to us? Why have we even started to back away from stepping up to meet the challenges, especially of moving to an electrified economy? Tamara, I think I'll just throw that over to you. <laughs> what happened? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to block you. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, thanks, Dallas. You're you're quite right. We uh, we did have a, a very uh, you know we we studied in school. We we see evidence of it. Uh, certainly, I'm from the interior. Um, the the work of W. A. C. Bennett and the way that they thought about building uh, the province is not just a generation ago. That's like two or three generations ago, and they did it so well. The irony is that it's it's lasted um, it's lasted even longer, I think, than they thought. And the work has not uh, the work has not continued. And you know, it's a real challenge for us, not only in our province and in our country, but uh, and for our productivity, but for our competitiveness. Because every other country in the world is having this conversation, except for too bad they had it a decade ago. Uh, and they're accelerating uh, the work. And so uh, we have the Inflation Reduction Act in, uh, in the United States, a trillion dollars, the vast majority of that is going to infrastructure, including electrification. And they have uh, been able to put money into place uh, at a rate and pace that will ensure the competitiveness and the talent uh, acquisition that's needed to sustain um, their economy for years and years to come. Now, we can't possibly compete with the size uh, of the investment that's needed there, but we have to mobilize the investment uh, and expedite the approval processes. It's not to say that we should not be looking at environmental issues when we issue a permit. We just can't look at them for seven years. Because when we look at them for seven years, the original assumption of the, plan of the project has changed 15 times by the time you get to final approval. And then suddenly what's approved doesn't really uh, matter anymore. And so it makes sense. And so we start at the beginning all over and over again. Um, we have to find a way to expedite those giving and incentives to projects that are doing the right thing and allow them to go through the gates faster. Uh, otherwise, we'll have a perfect process and no infrastructure. Vivian. In the fundamental planning, try again. <laughs> uh, planning of, of infrastructure projects, I think we have a ongoing observation that on day one of infrastructure opening, we are at or beyond capacity. So the day at we day show one. up at day one, <laughs> the way the, the day we show up at the start line, we are already sitting with an infrastructure deficit, fundamentally without enough capacity to uh, support the growing population. And okay, so then we, we roll back to when we initially made that decision on sizing the concept, the strategy to build this infrastructure. Um, it's built on a set of assumptions that assumed a very moderate growth in Canada, which is no longer the case. Um, the way in which we quantify economic benefits and that we justify um, the, the size to which we build to is also built on economy that is probably 20, 30 years outdated to what we're seeing today, let alone what we're about to see in the next 20 to 30 years. So not only are we you know, taking a very long time to get there, which makes the gap even larger, but the way in which we are quantifying and requiring um, decision makers, administrators to justify infrastructure is increasingly difficult. To use an outdated model, to use an outdated framework to quantify and justify benefits for what we know is going to be a fundamentally different population the day it opens to serve the public. Ken? 
I see you uh, nodding there. Yeah, I, I, the, the challenges are enormous. The, uh, I've been involved in processes for uh, uh, approval of expansions, and, and it, it really is remarkable how, who, what voices are heard, what voices are included, and how long the, the process can take. Um, I was thinking back to, again, going back, showing my age, the Canada line. I don't think there's a person in this room who would suggest the Canada line wasn't a fabulous investment and has served the, the region very well. But it ran into hiccups. It was, it was shot down twice by Metro Vancouver uh, because there wasn't enough support to it. And I had to go back to a third vote, I believe. So on top of the delays uh, with, uh, in terms of permitting and whatnot is this political up and down and volleyball back and forth. And I would suggest that the tunnel ran into a similar problem too. I should be commuting through the tunnel and not having any delays uh, at this very moment, but we're probably not going to have it completed. Chris was mentioning it before. We're not going to have it completed until after 20, 2030. And I, I sit there, and if you're with the counterflow, it's okay. And this is one thing that always baffled me in, in the tunnel debate. People would say, well, you're just going to drive up and run into the Oak Street Bridge a little way down the way. But I always used to scratch my head and went, yeah, but the tunnel flows both ways. And when it's down to that single lane the other direction, there's a huge list of trucks businesses trying to do deliver products and, and, and provide services lined up and delayed and it's it's anywhere from half an hour to 45 minutes upwards of an hour in some mornings so do you think the message is starting to hit home I, I remember Greg Davignon was uh, on one of our panels uh, a couple months ago and he said you know one of the challenges that we have here is that we've had it really good in Canada for a long time and the the drop-off isn't dramatic it's gradual. And so you don't really just kind of see it happening. It's, and so therefore, it has to literally get to the critical point before you're going to have uh, you know, enough people who are going to rise up and say, what went wrong and why haven't you fixed it? Get on it right now. Uh, are you uh, aware of this rising sort of concern in Burnaby, Mayor Hurley? And yeah, across, think, the, across the region as well. Yeah. I, Definitely across the region, and I would say especially when it comes to to transit and moving people around, uh, you know, we continue to grow at great rates, but uh, the way we move people around, I, I think there's real frustrations with that. And quite honestly, I think we just need to invest, invest, invest in transit because that's the only way we are going to be able to grow in a reasonable way and keep it reasonably affordable uh, to actually move around the city. So, so you know, I'm, I'm on the TransLink board as well, so I see the challenges there. Uh, but uh, people are very frustrated waiting for three, four buses at a time to get on. Uh, you know, we need to, the North Shore is, is completely log jammed most days, and uh, there's no real plans uh, to, to do any real transit expansion um, to the North Shore. And you, you, you look at the growth in Surrey and, and what's needed there. Um, so, you know, the infrastructure, it's depressing when you, when you start looking at it and say, how are we going to catch up? And the only way we're going to catch up is, is you know, we're going to have to eat it and say we have to invest. Uh, Sean, uh, there was a question that came in uh, from Michael McPhee about 
uh, unimpeded continued development. Can you share that with the panel, please? Absolutely. Uh, the question, what I'm hearing is just unimpeded continued development and growth. Is this really the future we want for our region? It's not my vision. We'll soon lose all those things that have made this region a wonderful place to live. Chris? So um, if you think about, and, and, and a lot of this comes down to affordability in terms of housing. 1972, we built in this country 230,000 new homes. 50 years later, we built fewer homes. In 2022, we built about 218,000 new homes. So we're actually underinvesting in housing, underinvesting in infrastructure. We don't have this un, you know, development that's out of control. We're actually not investing enough. We're in the middle of an affordability crisis, and the key to that, to getting out, is building more homes, is supply. But it, it takes, you know, the two worst cities in Canada to get housing approved in terms of at least four years is Vancouver and Toronto. And it, it, in the middle of a housing crisis, we can't get projects approved. And so, you know, we've got, on the one hand, because I've gone to lots of public hearings, I went to a public hearing for, uh, it was a parking lot, 10 acres, this was just before Christmas in, in October, uh, 10 acres downtown, uh, been a very controversial site for 10 years, been subject to, to court uh, challenges. So I went to the public hearing to speak in favor of, of the development, 110 units. Uh, again, 300 people. There's like five of us supporting the project. And, and the list is as long as you're armed about why they shouldn't build on a parking lot, 110 housing units. Everything from a restaurant uh, from around the corner, a guy says, I own a restaurant. These people are going to move here, and they're not going to come to my restaurant. And I'm like, what? You have a bad restaurant. Like, what's going on with your restaurant? Uh, there was one woman who said, I, I do tours of, of Chinatown, and, and uh, I, I run an art class. And we come here to the parking lot. I start every tour at the parking lot because it's a, it's a source of inspiration. It's a parking lot. Um, <laughs> but that's what we're facing. So I, I do not uh, believe that we have unbridled development. I think we have a lot of growth. And I think we need to be mindful of, of how we're growing. But we are not building fast enough. If we're going to put a dent in affordability, we better start building more homes because uh, CMHC and RBC came out last year with a report that said if we're going to meet demand for housing in this country over the next decade, every single year, we have to build about 800,000 new homes every single year. We're building about 230,000 new homes. We're never going to get to 800,000. I can guarantee you that. Can we get the 300,000 or 400,000? Maybe. But it will not be because the federal government's going to spend $20 million coming up with pre-planned housing drawings. I can guarantee you no builders ever come to me and said, Chris, I can't build enough because I spend too much time on drawings. <laughs> Amy, can you run the uh, clip that we have from John Stackhouse, the senior economist at uh, RBC? Principle of integrity of a, of a business model and a revenue model. And that R word, revenue word, is a really important one for Canadians to come to grips with. When it, when it comes to infrastructure, there can sometimes be too much of a desire for free infrastructure. Well, guess what? Nothing comes for free. So you want another highway, you want a better subway system, you want better airports. Someone's got to pay for it. 
and it's usually best for the users to pay for it. Uh, that's fair, uh, but it's also most uh, most efficient, or at least to pay for part of uh, certainly the ongoing costs of it and some of the capital costs. Um, that's a, 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 an approach to infrastructure that we've seen succeed all over the world, including here in Canada. And as we look for more infrastructure in our country, we're going to need to think through and, and be more comfortable with, uh, with, with that R word, with the revenue word, and ensuring that there is that certainty for the operators of those projects, for the users of those, those, those projects, but also for the financial backers of those projects. Vivian, your thoughts. Is he right? Do we really have to really start to ramp up uh, user fees? to be careful here with user fees. <laughs> it's an emotive topic. Um, and I think the underlying drivers of those emotions is ensuring that we are doing this as in, in the most equitable fashion possible, that we are not further penalizing those who need the service the most. When it's a user model, you know, we'll take transit, for example, take the current bus strike, for example, um, those who are most affected are those who are least prepared to weather those storms. And so when we layer on things like user-paid systems, um, they are most likely to suffer. And so then we start to look at, okay, what are tiered approaches for us to recover some of those expenses because we have to pay to operate this infrastructure. Um, and then I think that's where we explore kind of other mechanisms of revenue, which is still very fundamentally necessary to continue to move that financial machine so that we can continue to have more and better infrastructure to serve the region. Um, I, I think that is something that is culturally embedded, especially in Canada, to ensure that we are socially just in our pursuit of infrastructure. And I don't think that is a concept that can be lost as we're looking to partner more, more with private sector. It just takes um, a couple more thoughts and creativity, thinking outside of what we traditionally have, using the same stack of funding that you may access, but maybe turning it around to say, how are, what are other ways that we can distribute these costs um, in a way that is equitable and not further penalizing and driving greater disparity in, in the population? Dallas Vivian makes great points, doesn't she? Especially if we start looking at rural and uh, indigenous communities to all of a sudden say, oh yeah, no, we're going to bring in this infrastructure, but you're going to have to pay a hefty user fee on that. Oh, definitely. As we see treaties start to get finalized, we've seen kind of the backlash of that saying, what, we need to pay for this now? And that's the di that debate we're having in our communities. But there also has to be some more accountability in government. You know, we, we've watched not only governments in power start to be too influenced by social media, but we're even seeing opposition governments being too influenced. And no one's built a plan and stuck to it through a mandate anymore. Everybody's sort of changing on the fly, and we have these open-ended plans that have some nice platitudes in them, but they don't have an A to B to C. And that's the kind of dialogue that needs to happen so we can avoid the impacts of the shock of user fees and different things like that. So if we're sticking to a plan and actually implementing it through, we're going to have a better realistic understanding of where we are and where those shortcomings are as opposed to who's to blame. But I think it's really important for us to realize that infrastructure is almost like the introduction of traditional ecological knowledge with social and Western science, there's really a pragmatic, pragmatic, prag, there's a real simpleness to it <laughs> that if you just start to look from the environment that's around you and how you can take those to work to your advantage, like First Nations have done for 14,000 years, 
population numbers that we're looking at now in some of these remote communities, we'd be able to see some of these plans through, but we're making it overly complicated. I heard someone say, we're trying to make everything perfect, and by the time it takes to get it perfect, it's obsolete. And that's really the approach that needs to be taken to some of this infrastructure planning is we need to build good enough with the ability to add to it as we go, as populations start to rise again. You know, Tamara, you talked about user fees at the airport, like, and it, they're essential. Uh, so is it a case-by-case -case basis? You know, the deficit is so great that we need to use every tool in the toolkit, uh, I think. And so in some cases, user fees uh, do work without compromising the very important uh, principle of accessibility. In other places, user fees don't work at all, regardless of, um, of accessibility considerations, and it's just a, a public good. But I do think that we have allowed ourselves to be constrained in our thinking about which tool can be used in which time, in which way. So just like we need to uh, not have perfect be the enemy of the good and just start and, and innovate and, as we build, we also need to be doing that with respect to financing and funding because there simply is not enough. So yes, we have to think about the R word, as John said, but we also have to think about the I word uh, and, and invest. And is it, uh, is it uh, really a problem to have um, uh, private investment in public infrastructure in order to get that infrastructure in place, in order to sustain this, the community and the economy that we need, particularly, as I said earlier, if that private investment is actually our own public uh, pension funds, right? So like, what's the problem with that? Yeah. Why can't we have pension funds uh, invest? At the moment, they can't because they're considered private. Uh, and therefore, those funds can't flow into uh, into public ownership and into public funds. It's a every other country uses a tool that was invented here in Canada, public sector pension investment uh, funds. We're world renowned. We have a tool right there, and we don't use it. Mayor Hurley, as you listen to uh, John Stackhouse's uh, suggestion, but also to Mara's, how? practical is it for us to be able to find solutions that are going to fit like even within your city? Well, I think there always has to be social equity and uh, and I think Canada was built on that and uh, Canada will hopefully always be there. Um, you know, so so while you, we talk about user fees, oftentimes, uh, you know, user fees are not, in my opinion, used in the right way. Uh, so I would lean more uh, towards what Tamara had to say around, um, you know, I think we need to manage the funds in the right way so that there's always social justice built into anything we do. And uh, I think that's very important. Uh, and I think that's absolutely the Canadian way. So, Chris, how important is it that we figure out uh, funding uh, models so that we can keep a constant pipeline full of projects what does that do to the industry's ability to meet that need in the most cost-effective and timely manner? Well, I think one of, the, one of the challenges we face in our economy, broadly defined, is innovation and, and productivity. And um, when Tamara says that you know, we won't let a private sector entity invest in infrastructure, even though it's 
you know, our, our, our pension assets. There is a bias against the private sector that sort of crept into so many discussions. If you talk about our healthcare system and having the private sector single payer, but have the private sector deliver some of those services to release the pressures and the challenges we have with the system that's effectively collapsing around us, as soon as you say the word private sector delivery of a service, all of a sudden, it's like it's American style and people are going to just, you'll have access because of their credit card. And, and the, bake, the debate gets shut down very, very quickly. And if you look at so many other parts of our economy, you know, we have three, three big telephone providers, the telco providers, that's it. That's our choice. There was a big debate about uh, grocery stores. Six grocery store chains in this country deliver 75% of our groceries. So if we're concerned about the price of goods, what should we do? Competition. We should be allowing more competition, whether it's airlines, banking, you just go down the list. We have this sort of very narrow range of, of, uh, of compet competitive forces. We've got to unleash that innovation. We've got to benefit from the drive for people to, f to, be, to figure out how to compete and win business. And it's the same thing with construction. Restrictive hiring practices, restrictive procurement practices that make it more difficult to procure a project, more costly to procure procure project, make it more expensive, and makes it more difficult for us to build the infrastructure that we need. Ken, your thoughts? Uh, back to user fees, I, I, yes, there is, and it's on a case-by-case -case basis, I believe, as, as you alluded to. Uh, there's definitely room for user fees in the mix. Tamara said every tool in the toolkit, absolutely, particularly if it advances it. Now, I am also very sensitive to the issues about equity that have been raised here. Um, I th think back to the Portman uh, Bridge. There was a toll on it for a while. It always struck me as a bit unusual that it was the only bridge tolled and the others weren't. Seemed inequitable to people that happened to live on that in, in Surrey on that side of the bridge. Um, that, of course, it was eliminated. So, you know, in thinking about these things, it's complicated, but at the, at the end of the day, it's either taxpayer dollars or user fees that are going to finance th these things. Um, if we can leverage federal government money here, money here, I say let's do that. Leverage federal government money as much as possible. But uh, yeah, there's, there's got to be some. We got to open up our thinking and, and at least entertain user fees where they would be viable. Keep them keep them minimum. Don't uh, make them onerous, but uh, yeah, incorporate them. So I, I want to wrap up with an idea that uh, was presented to me about cathedral thinking. And this is a concept that comes out of the early days of building cathedrals. And it was such a long-term view about the building of an important structure in the community that people invested in something that they would never see completed in their lifetime, which would be the building of a cathedral. Uh, and that cathedral thinking was applied to, in particular, the, the building of the sewer system in Dublin and also in London. Do we have the capacity here to pull together uh, the imaginative and innovative ideas that uh, some of them that are, are being presented here, develop a grand scheme for British Columbia, develop that ex expertise, and then turn that into an exportable uh, service that we can share with the rest of the world? Like, do we have that capacity? Chris, I want to start with you because I know that you uh, you ideally would like to see us in that place, and you're saying we're fighting against ourselves uh, for uh, against what we can be. Yeah, listen, I, I think we've got enormously talented people. We've got great resources. We are 
uh, we've got a, a free trade agreement with the largest economy in, in, uh, in the world. Um, we've got great educational institutions. You go down the list. The challenge is we have got caught up in a dynamic that is, in my view, anti-investment, anti-business, anti-free enterprise, anti-entrepreneurial. And, and that's hurting us in so many different ways. Uh, RBC came out with a report uh, last year that said that the rate of, of entrepreneurial, like uh, people who are starting uh, businesses, is at a generation low. Um, and that's, why is that? Why do people think, why in the last three years in British Columbia are 94% of all jobs created government jobs? 94% in the last three years. In the last three years, in no province in this country was private sector job creation outpacing the government sector. Like, like that, is, that doesn't make any sense. So we've got to unleash the innovative capacity of the talented people in this country and start thinking differently about how we approach these problems because every single solution doesn't rest in Ottawa or Victoria or at City Hall. Dallas, do you think that we have the collective will to, to come up with solutions that we can all work towards rather than be uh, fractured in, in, in different sections or uh, sectors of, of the, our society? I like to think there is. I mean, we, we get caught up in this urban-rural divide all the time. I know I deal with anything from aquaculture to forestry to high-tech now. And I know one of the things nations in remote communities are sort of saying to their new partners, saying, what are you going to bring to this? You know, we're tired of seeing our resources get developed and used and the profits go international. And I think that's something First Nations can bring to the equation across the board, whether it be urban or rural, and sort of start to say, okay, the partnerships that we're going to continue to build are going to have an investment towards this kind of future that's so lacking in our communities and may be taken for granted in other communities until it's lacking. And so I think that's a solution that has to come to the table is how do we bring more of that wealth that's generated within British Columbia, as an example, and how do we keep it in BC while still remaining a global player in, in the development of resources and the distribution of resources. Vivian, do we have this capacity? Like everyone said, there's no shortage of talent or bright ideas in terms of what we need to do. Um, my personal observation is perhaps it needs to be better supported by more robust, updated strategic decision-making frameworks um, to, to support these decisions, to help them stand the test of time. Um, uh, go back to some of the earliest comments on the panel is, um, there are so many political external forces that are able to make themselves um, known and influence operational decisions at the end of the day. So when we don't have clarity in that decision-making, when there's no certainty in decision-making, it's very difficult <laughs> to try and invest for 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now. Um, so, so I think there is a refresh that is required to look at how we make decisions, um, ensuring that different entities are appropriately empowered to make those decisions, um, and have the ability to carry on with certainty to deliver on that infrastructure without it being stalled halfway and us having to go back to step one to do it all over again. So if we're able to develop that kind of certainty, Ken, what's the benefit to BC as it, in its ability to attract investment here and to build businesses and the economy? Oh, it, it, would, be, it would be substantial um, if it could be pulled off. But just to step back a moment and answer your question more directly. I think your vision might be a bit ambitious, particularly when we get to the exporting part. It, well worth pursuing. I would go for a smaller chunk, or something like a 
kind of like more visionary projects, tenure projects. Um, and I, and I say that just because it's so hard getting agreement right across the province, across political spectrum and whatnot. But something like, for example, no one's talking about why is there no discussion? I'm not saying it's the way to go, but why is there no discussion of a rapid transit line all the way out to Chilliwack that uh, will provide a, a timely and reasonable commute for people from uh, you know, Abbotsford in, into the city? May not be the best thing to do, but it's, it's not even contemplated. So. A partial yes, yes to what you were saying saying a moment ago. But the benefits to BC would be huge if this was a place where that was attractive for capital investment, uh, right across the board, no matter what sector or industry you're in. And when you came here, you could move around efficiently, move goods around efficiently, uh, get your products to port to the airport across the border in a quick and time manner. That is huge. And those investments compound the benefit of those investments compound. Um, and the, the concern that I have is it goes the other way. When you're under-investing, you're bogged down, you can't, it's less, less attractive, and it kind of reverse compounds, if I can use that term, and it, it chases capital away. And I do fear we are actually in that world right now where large capital investments, they're very difficult to advance in this province, and we are steering money uh, out, out of this province. In real, it's currently happening right now, and it's going to get worse unless we change things around. And it's not only around the infrastructure, it's around the permitting and all the other things that we've discussed today. Mayor Hurley, maybe you can answer this question. Um, I'm asking it without knowing, but it had been suggested to me that if we truly were visionary about our water supply uh, in the Fraser Valley and Lower Mainland, we have uh, one of the world's largest uh, reserves of freshwater, Harrison Lake, and nobody talks about because it would be a massive scale project to be able to tap into that uh, reservoir of water. Do we have the capacity to start to think in that kind of grand scale based on what you know about how the politics of Metro Vancouver are? Well, I think we're, we're very well served with water as it is. We have the Coquitlam, the Coquitlam Dam, which has got a lot of potential uh, to, to um, to do more work and, and, and make it more efficient to, to deliver the right amounts of water. And, and in the North Shore, I mean, I, I don't see us in the lower mainland um, having a water issue uh, in the near future. I mean, that could change where climate change goes and all of that goes. But I think Metro has really planned well around the delivery of water in the lower mainland. And I think we, we're, we're in a good place there for the next 50 years anyways, as long as we use the Coquitlam and the North Shore water responsibly. Um, now, Harrison Lake is, is, is a whole different topic because there's, it, it, it goes into different levels in different places in the province. But mm -hmm. there is a lot of water there, no doubt. But uh, uh, for now, Metro Vancouver hasn't been discussing uh, having to go there. We're more focused on the Coquitlam and the and the North Shore, so so that's where that is. But I, you know, back to your last question, I really think there's tremendous talent around, and you know, the circular economy is something that we really need to to start having a look at, and that's even out of our sewer systems, we can develop heat, uh, we can develop uh, fertilizers. You know, there's there's different ways that we can manage if we do it properly and and that can start to pay for itself over a over a longer period of time 
So I do think there's tremendous opportunities. Uh, looking at Iona, and, and I know the Metro Vancouver staff are doing tremendous work in looking what can be accomplished there. So, so I'm very positive about how we can meet these challenges. But, uh, but it's going to take everyone on deck and and every tool in the toolbox being used, and open minds, as Chris says, we need to have open minds uh, to to find other ways to do things. We don't have to be parochial. Uh, we, we need to have those open minds. So, although you hear a lot of negativity here tonight, I still very I still feel very positive about the future of Metro Vancouver. Yeah. So, Tamara, to wrap up with you, you started with us, and you have an optimistic view of what is possible here. What does that future look like from from your perspective? Yeah. You know, you asked the question about cathedral thinking, and you know, do we have the capacity? to really uh, to really get this done. And I think the answer to that is yes, simply because uh, we've demonstrated our ability to do it uh, in the past. Um, our country as a, as a Western country certainly um, existed in indigenous form before that, but as a Western country, we were founded on the premise of a vision of infrastructure, a rail line that uh, went coast to coast. On our coat of arms, it says, Admare usque admare, right? Coast to coast. Somebody had the brilliant idea of the St. Lawrence Seaway fundamentally transforming uh, access to goods and services and opening up uh, the center of the country. And more recently, the Vancouver Gateway Council uh, made investments in our port and rail and uh, transportation uh, infrastructure that served our um, region very, very well for decades. So as the... Uh, as the saying goes, the best time to solve a problem is when you know you have one. And what we lack, I think, truly, is not uh, vision, but a sense of urgency. These are not problems that can wait for the perfect, coordinated, multi-jurisdictional uh, plan. We need to start on multiple fronts uh, and get going be transparent, learn from each other, try different models, get different pieces in place, or we are not going to be able uh, to catch up with the deficit that we have created. And frankly, it's not going to be an issue for us. It's going to be an issue for our kids uh, and their kids. You remind me that probably the first greatest infrastructure project in Canada was the building of the railroad. It brought us together. And it's that infrastructure that we still rely on. And so when we invest in these uh, major projects that make a difference, uh, then not only this generation, but many, many future generations will benefit from it. I want to thank you all for your uh, time this evening, um, your insights. I, I think we solved the problem, and we're going to get it uh, tackled now. <laughs> That's always the challenge. You generate ideas, and you hope that they're going to uh, ignite further discussions that can lead to the kind of change that I think we all would like to see. And thank you all for joining us here in room and those of you who joined us online. And I particularly want to thank our sponsors, our, particularly our presenting sponsors, KPMG, RBC, and Helijet, as well as everybody else that has supported us and the Vancouver Sun for carrying this series. Join us on February the 27th when we're going to have the same muddied and uncertain outcome when we discuss housing. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>